Welcome to a Bible study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel reading. This is a recording of a Bible study I do every week in person at St. Timothy Catholic Church in Laguna Niguel, and you would be most welcome. Just email me for the details. But it is here for you to benefit from, and I hope it enhances your experience of the Mass. So without further ado, enjoy a recording of this study on the upcoming Sunday Gospel. We pray, Lord, in thanksgiving for this opportunity this evening to come together as community, to dive into your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We ask, Lord, that you would guide us and help us to be attentive to your voice. We pray, Lord, that you would move in this place, that you would bring healing and comfort, guidance in this time in your word, and that you would bless us each in the ways we most need it. We pray in any ways that we're distracted, worried, or anxious, that you would remove those things from our minds and hearts, and you would cast those things out in your name, the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Be with us tonight. Be with those who we keep in prayer, and help us in the ways that we are grieving, worried, anxious, lost, searching, to know that you are a loving Father who is always up to something good in the lives of his children. We praise you and we thank you for all of these things that we pray in your most mighty name, Jesus. Amen. 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 The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Do you mind turning that off for me? Thank you. Yeah, it's just my iPad. You can just like unplug it. Uh, welcome. We are in Mark chapter 13, verses 33 through 37. This is the gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, which is the first Sunday of Advent. We are starting a new liturgical cycle and a new liturgical season and a new liturgical year. All this Sunday, a lot of great things happening. So, if you didn't know, Advent is the beginning of our liturgical calendar in the Catholic Church, and so this Sunday is basically like Catholic New Year's Day. So, Happy New Year. And uh, every new year, we start a new cycle of readings. And uh, that cycle follows a three-year cycle wherein uh, we go through cycle A, cycle B, and cycle C. We just finished cycle A, which is predominantly going through the Gospel of Matthew. We will now begin cycle B, which is predominantly going through the Gospel of Mark. And then cycle C goes through most of the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of John is sprinkled throughout all three years during particular liturgical seasons, such as Easter, Christmas, uh, and some during uh, Lent and uh, Advent. So we can expect maybe some from the Gospel of John in the coming weeks. But predominantly this year, we will be in the Gospel of Mark. And so we'll start to pick out some of those common themes, um, but we won't be going to any kind of birth narrative during the season of Advent in the Gospel of Mark because there is none in the Gospel of Mark. Mark gets right down to Jesus in his full-grown adult ministry and really wants to establish that Jesus is the Son of God. And you can see that in the very first verse in the Gospel of Mark. It says, the beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And then it goes right into the prophecies of Isaiah about the Messiah and the one that would prefigure the Messiah right into the ministry of John the Baptist. So we get right into it. Mark is fast. He wants to establish that Jesus has power over evil, dominion over the world, and that he is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And so the symbol of the Gospel of Mark is the lion. So if you go to St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, Italy, there are lions on the facade of that church, and that's often the symbol associated with the Gospel of Mark. So that's the kind of Jesus that we are going to encounter 
in the Gospel of Mark, a very fierce, powerful, um, dominion over evil, authority over others uh, type of Jesus. And so be prepared for that as we're shifting away from the very human Jewish depiction of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew of this past year. Okay, so all that being said, let's look at our gospel reading for this upcoming Sunday, the first Sunday of Advent. We are in Mark chapter 13, verses 33 through 37. We're going to read this a few times. Uh, And so first time through, just get a picture for what's being said. Give you a little context. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, which is right next to the city of Jerusalem. It's just east of Jerusalem. And he's on the Jerusalem facing side so he can see the temple. And the disciples are there, but he is approached specifically by Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And they start to ask him questions about the coming of the kingdom. And so he starts to answer them. And this is part of that discourse, this dialogue between Jesus and those four particular disciples who were most close to him. So Mark 13, starting in verse 33. Be watchful. Be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his work, and orders the gatekeeper to be on watch. Watch, therefore. You do not know when the Lord of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at cock crow or in the morning. May he not come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. The gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So as this is a shorter gospel, I'm going to read through this two more times. And as I do, I, I want you to listen for any particular word or phrase that stands out to you, anything that resonates with you personally. This is not to interpret the passage theologically, we'll get into that, but I really want to start with what resonates with you, what speaks to you, how is God using this passage to relate to something going on in your own life, your own heart, questions that are being uh, arisen in your own mind, pay attention to those things. How is God speaking to me specifically through this passage? Could be an insignificant word or detail. Again, ruminate on those things, write them down, reflect on them, and ask, why God is this standing out to me? What are you trying to say to me? So two more times through, Mark chapter 13, verses 33 through 37. Be watchful, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his work, and orders the gatekeeper to be on watch. Watch, therefore, you do not know when the Lord of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning. May he not come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all, watch. Be watchful, be alert. You do not know when the time will come. It is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his work, and orders the gatekeeper to be on the watch. Watch, therefore, 
you do not know when the Lord of the house is coming, whether in the evening or at midnight or at cockcrow or in the morning. May he not come suddenly and find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to all. Watch. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Jesus Christ. So I invite you to take a few moments to reflect back on the passage, to see what stood out to you. If you're watching or listening to this later, please let us know what stood out to you. But for those of us here, we're going to take about the next 10 minutes at your tables. Feel free to share what stood out to you and why, what questions you have about this passage and discuss those. And then we'll bring it back to the larger group for some teaching and some question and answer. So take about the next 10 or 15 minutes. So a little bit about this passage to give you some context. Um, this passage has kind of in it these, these divisions of the night. When the master comes back, he says that you don't know if it's going to be in the evening, at midnight, at cockcrow, in the morning. Uh, and there's a little uh, literary kind of clue there that Mark actually positions and uh, structures his narrative of the passion according to the different watches of the night. And that's about to happen. This is kind of the last interaction he has with the disciples because right there in 14, the very next chapter, the heading is the conspiracy against Jesus. And so Mark then presents the uh, events that unfold in Mark 14 and 15 according to those different watches of the night. So Mark 14, 17, it says it's evening. Mark uh, in 14, 32 through 65, it's implied it's closer to midnight. Uh, cock crow, we know that that is often indicated by Peter's denial of Jesus uh, in Mark 14, 72, and then the morning in Mark 15, 1. And so uh, Mark here is kind of using this final dialogue with the disciples to show that in one way this is about to be fulfilled, and then in another way it will be fulfilled in the future. Prophecies often in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, like apocalyptic literature sections like this, often have an immediate fulfillment and a future fulfillment. So when Isaiah is prophesying about a Messiah or one to come, there are certain people at that time that might fill that, fit that bill or that description, but they also apply even more so and more descriptively to Jesus later on. It's very common of prophecies in the words of prophets that they're fulfilled in sometimes an immediate way and in a future way. So often it's difficult to tell in these different prophetic uh, things about the end of time or that seem that way, whether or not this is about the coming of Jesus' kingdom, meaning the fruition of the events of his death, resurrection, and ascension are coming to pass, whether or not it's about the destruction of Jerusalem that is foretold that's going to happen in the year 70, and or whether it's not about the end of time when he returns. And often the answer is, yeah, it's about, it's about those. It's about all of them in some capacity. Um, this is often more so interpreted as when Jesus comes back the second time. Okay? But he uses a lot of the language and a lot of the, uh, the events that happen immediately after this in the Gospel of Mark in this passage. Um, watch so that we know he, the master may not find you sleeping. What happens when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane? The disciples are sleeping. And he comes back to them, can you not stay awake with me? Okay, so he sets up this story to kind of warn them of the events that are about to happen that very night, but also so that they will keep in mind about when he is going to return. Okay, so that happens in here, and a lot of this uses language that's very similar to things in the Old Testament. So for example, this word watch, Grigoreo, 
um, that's used in the very last word of this passage. It's the same word that's used in uh, the translations of the Old Testament in certain prophetic books or prophets like Jeremiah and Lamentations. So Jeremiah and Lamentations in chapter 2 verse 9, this is the basically the lament of Jeremiah at the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And he says this, even her prophets do not obtain any vision from the Lord about the destruction that is to come, is what he's referring to. So even the prophets themselves don't know. Just as Jesus says right previous to this in verse 32, but of that day or hour no one knows, neither the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Okay, so similar language being used to the Old Testament prophets and to Jesus, standing in the position of both the Messiah, but also the final prophet. Okay, Jesus is priest, prophet, and king. We celebrated yesterday the solemnity of Jesus, our Lord Jesus Christ, king of the universe, in fulfillment of the fact that he is like the new King David, even more so. He is the prophet like Moses that Moses prophesies in Deuteronomy 18.15. A prophet like me will come after me who is greater than I. He is the one you shall listen to. And he is also the once and for all high priest. And that's spelled out very clearly in the book of Hebrews. And he has all this priestly imagery. He is the anointed one. And who is anointed in the Old Testament? Priests, prophets, and kings. That's what Christ, Christos, or Messiah, Hebrew, Mashiach, means, the anointed one. And so Jesus is standing in this kind of prophetic role as the new prophet, prophesying using the same prophetic language of the Old Testament, um, that they don't know the day or the hour this destruction is going to come, just like Jeremiah didn't know when the destruction was going to come. And then we see words like in Ezekiel uh, chapter 3, verse uh, 17, he says, Son of man, I have appointed you a sentinel for the house of Israel. When you hear a word from my mouth, you shall warn them for me. So Jesus here, yes, he's the Messiah, he's the Son of God, but he's also prophetically warning the disciples about what is to come. Because it says, thereafter, if I say to the wicked, you will surely die, and you do not warn them, then I will hold you responsible for their blood. That's the role and the responsibility of a prophet. If you don't warn them about what's coming, and they suffer destruction or sin because of it, you are held responsible. So Jesus is standing in that Old Testament tradition of a prophet, telling them to watch, to be aware. And then lastly, in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 1, it says, I will stand at my guard post and station myself upon the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what answer he will give to my complaint. So Jesus is rooting himself in this prophetic language, trying to be very clear that all the destruction that was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament that was fulfilled both by the Babylonians is also being prophesied now about the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of his own body, but also in the, the time to come when he returns a second time. So he's using that same language, and Mark is very artfully using this, whether you realize it or not, recording the words of Jesus that are very crafted in such a way to apply in all these different contexts uh, in prophecy. What this inspires in me to think about, um, or at least to help me realize, there's, there's no room for complacency in the Christian life. There's no room for complacency in the Christian life. Like we're, called, we're being called to watch, to stand guard. And notice, he leaves home and places his servants in charge, each with his work. Like there is work to be done. There are responsibilities that we all have while we are waiting. Now, a lot of times when we wait, we don't like to wait, right? So we occupy ourselves with mean, meaningless tasks. We twiddle our thumbs. We sit around. We, you know, we, we, we procrastinate. That is not 
There's no room for that in the Christian life. There's no room for complacency in the Christian life. And Jesus, in all of these passages, I mean, this starts, the signs of the end, all the way back in verse 3 of this chapter. And this is the same conversation, telling them about how the kingdom is going to be fulfilled, to stay alert, to be ready for the tribulation that will come, the persecution, the suffering, unlike any suffering that has happened since the beginning of the creation of the world, is what is said in the verses previous. That is what will prefigure when Jesus will come again. And so watch and be ready. Watch for the signs of one coming on the clouds like a son of man, quoting back that, those verses from Daniel uh, chapter 7 that are quoted earlier or referred to earlier in this chapter. And so all of that is reminding us to be alert, to stay watchful, that there is work that you and I have been entrusted to do and that we have the authority to do it. In the verse uh, 34, it is like a man traveling abroad. He leaves home and places his servants in charge. The original Greek says, uh, can be better translated, places his servants having given them authority. Having given them authority. That you and I have been given authority. It's interesting here that the disciples are asking Jesus, when will this happen? Tell us, when are the signs when all these things will come to end? When are you bringing about your kingdom? And he says, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons for that, but I am giving you authority. Later on, after Jesus has died and resurrected in Acts chapter 1, listen to this conversation that happens. When they had gathered together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He answered them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has established by his own authority, but you will receive power authority when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And so the comparison here is to remind us that the work that we are meant to do is the building of the kingdom. We are empowered by the authority of the Holy Spirit. So often we want to see the end goal, right? We want to see everything come to fruition. We want Jesus to reveal to us, how is this all going to play out? Whether it's a decision you're making in your own life, like, all right, God, show me the final destination. How are we going to get there? I want to eventually have this job or this vocation or be, be stable in this way or grow spiritually in this way. Help me to see how to get there. Never once in Scripture does Jesus say, all right, here's steps 1 through 100. Here's exactly how it's going to go. Even when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you are with child, the Son of God. The Holy Spirit has overshadowed you. You are giving birth to the Messiah. She says, all right, let it be done to me according to your word. And then the angel Gabriel, does he hand her a manual of everything that's going to happen? No, he leaves. He just says, hey, guess what? This is happening. And she says, okay. And then poof, no idea of what that is going to look like, how that is going to come to fruition. When her and Joseph go to the temple to present Jesus eight days after his birth, they encounter the prophet Simeon. And what does Simeon say? Your heart, a sword shall pierce. Uh, what do you mean? No, doesn't explain. He just prophesies that this is what is going to happen. We often want to see the end goal. We want to have an assurance, God, like, okay, show me where you're going to take me. Show me what this is going to look like and give me all the information I need so that then I can trust. Well, that's easy. It's easy to trust when you have a manual, when it's all spelled out for you, when you already know all of the steps in the end of the story. The hard thing for the Christian, where it's easy to become complacent or confused or doubtful, is that we've been revealed the end of the story, 
in very symbolic and apocalyptic ways, but we've been told the end of the story, but we have not been told when it will happen or how we will get there. We've been given some clues, but we are told to watch and to do the work of the authority that we've been given by the power of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is essentially saying, it doesn't really matter for you to know. What good will you do if you know when it's coming? I've got that all taken care of. The good that you can do is to use the authority and the power given you by my Holy Spirit so that when that end comes, more people are prepared and ready and watching for it. That is what matters most. That's why there's no room for complacency in the Christian life because if we know the end and we know all the steps to get there, well, we can rest on our laurels and be like, well, I'm in a state of grace. I know that Jesus is coming tomorrow. I'll just kick up my feet and there's no big deal. I'm ready. I've done all my good works, you know, I'll pray an extra rosary tonight, I'll go to confession, you know, whatever. We're not motivated to really be consciously working for our salvation. Not that we can earn it, but working for our ongoing sanctification. So when that time comes for judgment, we're ready because we don't know when it's going to happen. It's not promised. You've probably been asked this question before. Would you rather know uh, the day that you're going to die or the way that you're going to die? I would always rather not know the day. Always rather not know the day. Because if you know the day, then everything else is just like kind of like, all right, I can just kind of waste my time. I know there's no risk involved. And it's easy to just then go be careless or complacent. But if I know the way I'm going to die, just in the analogy here spiritually, sin is the wages of sin is death. Sin will cause your destruction. Then I know just to avoid that. And so when the end comes, the end will come. But I don't need to be resting on my laurels or falling into complacency. I know that I'm avoiding the thing that I need to avoid so as to prolong my life as much as possible. It's not a perfect analogy for the spiritual life, but you get what I'm saying, hopefully, is that that's why Jesus doesn't reveal the end. He's calling us to be prepared. Not to get complacent, but to be prepared. So are there ways in your own life, in your own spiritual, spiritual journey, that you've become complacent? I want to read for you this, uh, this passage I came across, and then we'll open it up for, for questions and comments. Um, this is a hymn. Uh, it's a translation of a, a Greek Orthodox hymn called Behold the Bridegroom Cometh. Behold the bridegroom cometh in the middle of the night, and blessed is he whose loins are girt, whose lamp is burning bright. But woe to that dull servant whom the master shall surprise, with lamp untrimmed, unburning, and with slumber in his eyes. Do thou, my soul, beware, beware, lest thou in sleep sink down, lest thou be given over to death and lose the golden crown. But see that thou be sober with a watchful eye, and thus cry, Holy, holy, holy God, have mercy upon us. That day, the day of fear, shall come. My soul, slack not thy toil, but light thy lamp and feed it well and make it bright with oil. Who knowest not how soon may sound the cry at eventide? Behold, the bridegroom comes, arise, Go forth to meet the bride. Beware, my soul, beware, beware, lest thou in slumber lie. And like the five, remain without, and knock, and vainly cry. But watch and bear thy lamp undimmed, and Christ shall gird thee on, 
his own bright wedding robe of light, the glory of the sun. All that being said, any questions, comments, things that stood out to you? Yes. Um, so we study history mm -hmm. to learn from it. We live in the present mm -hmm. because we want to be present. Mm -hmm. So this, I don't know if it's like a warning just to not kind of worry about the future, mm -hmm. like Padre Pio. Um, is, is, what would you characterize somebody who worries about the future? Like, is there some level of prudence to prepare? You know, mm. like I, it, it's sort of like, you know, you're, you're a manager and you have to plan, you know, forecast. You have to, yeah. um, I feel like there is a, like, a level that you should prepare for, yeah. but not worry about. Is there like a distinction that you can elaborate on that would be helpful for Christians? Yeah, I think, um, I think you're right. I think prudence and wisdom does require planning, but that's more focused on the, the present moment and the immediate future. Because even that is unpredictable. Like, we don't know even what will happen tomorrow, but we have things in our calendar for, for tomorrow that will most likely happen. But things in our calendar from a year from now are much more fluid, you know, or even months from now. So I think just in a practical sense about being focused as close to the present moment as possible and only so much as into the future to be prudent and responsible with the, the work and the responsibilities we've been given by God as, you know, parents, spouses, employees, things like that. And it's, uh, the Christian plans in pencil. The Christian plans in pencil. And so we're always aware of the fact that this could change. We're not worried about it. It's not in pen. Um, I get far less anxious when I'm doing a crossword in pencil than when I'm doing it in pen. Um, but I'm also a lot more scrupulous about what I actually write down and what I don't. And so that's where we can fall into a risky area is where we get too scrupulous about what we can plan. And then we start to let our kind of fingers get into every area of our life. That desire to control and pride seeps in. So there's a saying, I, I'm not going to say it properly because I don't know who it's attributed to um, and I haven't been able to find it since, but it basically went something like this. People who dwell in the past are people of depression. People who dwell in the future are people of anxiety. But people who dwell in the present moment are people of peace. And so the more we can root ourselves in the present moment, the more peace that we will have. That doesn't mean that we abandon the future or we seek not to learn from the past, but it's only to have the wisdom so as to inform how we act most wise and prudently in the present moment and plan for our immediate future, but plan in pencil because we know that the Lord is always up to something good and his plan should be the one that's in pen. Does that make sense? Yeah. Other comments, questions? Yes. So, uh, some of the conversation we had was so we're going to be in a and liturgical year. Yes. And this is the new year just beginning. And the first major event after the uh, Immaculate Conception is the birth of our Lord. Mm -hmm. The Advent and the anticipation that um, involves. Mm -hmm. And they went to almost the end of Mark's Gospel uh, shortly before he died. Uh, I was wondering if you wanted to discuss the totality of that anticipation, uh, not just for the birth of Christ, but for his death and resurrection and the birth of the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Uh, are there any comments that uh, you can make on that? Yeah, I mean, that's really what the season of Advent is about. You know, the season of Advent, that's why it blends so seamlessly liturgically from the solemnity we just celebrated to the first Sunday of Advent. And you'll notice this in every liturgical cycle. The first Sunday of Advent in any year, we don't jump right into, and there was a woman named Mary. Like that happens maybe second, third, fourth Sundays of Advent. But the first Sunday is always very similar to the last, the last Sunday, the solemnity of our Lord Jesus Christ, King of the universe. Because the season of Advent, the word Advent comes from the, uh, a word meaning arrival or to come. So it's anticipating that Jesus is coming. But in, in the season of Advent, we anticipate a threefold arrival of Christ, that he arrived in the past, 2,000 years ago, and we re remember that as the incarnation, that the moment Jesus became man, we were saved. That is what the Catechism says. The moment Jesus became man, we were saved. So in the same way we celebrate the salvation of the death and resurrection of Christ at Easter time, we can have that same joy and exuberance at the fact that our salvation has already been put into effect by the birth of Christ. Uh, in the Christmas season, and Advent prepares us for that. So we anticipate that historical coming of Jesus. We anticipate the second coming of Jesus, which is why that blending happens so well. And then the third uh, is that he is coming to us each and every day. And so the totality of that is a recognition that this is not just a historical kind of walking through the narrative of Scripture. This is a reality that we are invited into every single day to anticipate the moment we wake up, how is Jesus coming to me today? And every liturgical season, Advent, Christmas, Easter, the other one, Lent, <laughs> ordinary time, they all have their seasons in the year, but they are meant to be lived every day. Every day we're meant to be people of Easter joy. Every day we're meant to anticipate the fact that Jesus is being born anew into our life like at Christmas. Every day we're meant to prepare for his arrival like at Advent. Every day we're called to prayer, fasting, and almsgiving like in Lent. Every day we are in ordinary time to recognize God works in extraordinary ways, even in the most ordinary of moments. And so no matter where we are in the liturgical year, every season can be called to mind. But when we enter into that specific season, we can take on the caricature and the theme in our own spirituality of how Jesus is coming to us in the past, in the future, and especially in the present moment. And so that's why there's this kind of seamless transition where we don't dive right into the, the birth narrative right away. We remember just as the year ends is so how the year begins. This is a cycle that is seamless and a constant awareness that we need to have that Jesus will come. It says in Romans, I think this is in Romans chapter 8, Oh, sorry, chapter 11. Nope, this is not where it is. Where is it? 13? Yes, chapter 13, verse 11. And do this because you know the time. It is the hour now for you to awake from sleep. The passion of Christ is the beginning, was the beginning of the end of history. The passion of Jesus, his death, his crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension. That was the beginning of the end of human history. We are in the last days still. Jesus' second coming could happen anytime. So Advent is meant to be experienced every day. This is where uh, our brothers and sisters who are Seventh-day Adventists, this is where their name comes from, because two of the predominant things that they believe is that they should worship on the seventh day, the Jewish Sabbath, which we don't do because they don't do that in Scripture, but that's where they get their name from. And that Adventist means they believe that the second coming is going to happen very soon. And they have predicted it several times. 
Unfortunately, they've all been wrong, but we still love them as our brothers and sisters. But those are the two predominant and prevailing factors of their religion. Seventh day worship, Adventist, Jesus is coming now, like any time. And we believe, yes, we are in the end of days, but we've been in the end of days since the moment of the Passion. And time works differently to the Lord. He's outside of time. He took a sweet 13.8 billion year time to create us and get us here, you know, so far. And so he's taken his sweet time because his ways are above our ways and his thoughts are above our thoughts, as Isaiah says. So um, the liturgical season is not meant to scare you into a recognition that this is happening now, but it's also a preparation that it could. It could. So we're not just getting into the nativity scene Jesus and the manger and the sweet story of Mary. And that's important. And we can glean really great qualities of discipleship from that. But as you said, the totality of this experience liturgically is to remind us that we are always in this cycle of anticipation and waiting. It never ends. And the moment we lose sight of that is the moment we become complacent and we get in really dangerous territory. There is no room in the Christian life for complacency. To answer your question? Great. I was sorry, I was long-winded, but yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, um, like scrupulosity. Yeah. Um, how do we avoid the fear of not doing enough? I think um, it's the recognition that there is nothing you can do to be saved. You can't save yourself. You can't work for it. That's a heresy. If we believe that, that's a heresy of Pelagianism. And the more we get caught up in the scrupulosity of like, these are the works that I'm going to do. Um, then the more we get caught up in what I think the devil wants us to do is kind of corrupts our idea of religion as almost like this self-help salvation that's dependent upon us and not upon the Lord. So I think if we, uh, there, a lot of different things I could say about this, but if you're finding that you're falling into scrupulosity, I think it's an opportunity to take a step back and ask yourself the simple question, do I trust Jesus? Do I trust Jesus enough that I know that he has forgiven me, that if I go to him in honest repentance, that I will see him one day in eternal life? Do I trust Jesus enough? Do I desire heaven? Because if I do, it'll be very easy to avoid sin. There have been many, say, I love stories of saints who struggled, especially with lust. It's a very modern, kind of very human uh, sin. And I think it was St. Benedict that anytime he felt uh, uh, lust burning within him, he would just throw himself into a thorn bush. <laughs> that was it. It was really hard to be frisky when you've got thorns in your leg, you know, like... Um, and that's what he would do, you know? And so that, it's just that, that recognition, like, I don't want to even fall into this, you know? So I'm going to do everything I can to keep that desire of heaven front of mind. So it's more about how can I remove the obstacles to make way for Jesus to save me versus I'm the one that builds the path. We don't build the path. The cross built the path. So if we get caught up in the good works and the things, those should be part and parcel of just a person who has faith. Okay, so it's the difference between saying, um, in order to be a good husband to my wife, I'm going to do the dishes, I'm going to tell her I love her every day, I'm going to make the bed, I'm going to make sure she has her morning coffee and her breakfast in bed, I'm going to do all these things for her, or I'm going to be faithful and sacrificially love my wife, and I'm going to live my life as if I mean it. Will some of the actions look the same? Yes. But they're done out of sacrificial love for my wife, knowing that I cannot make her sacrificially love me in return. This is just what it means to express it. The same thing is true of faith. I can do the works of faith and act like, okay, this will get me there. 
Or I can recognize that if I'm deeply in love with the Lord, this stuff will just happen naturally. And if it happens naturally, I don't need to worry about it. So if we start falling into worry, it could be a sign that our attention is focused on the wrong things. And we need to take a step back, focus on our relationship with the Lord and ask, like, is this deep enough to where this is natural for these things to happen? And I don't need to worry about them. Because if I'm focusing just on the actions, oh, I haven't had a date night with my week. I didn't kiss my wife's feet today. I didn't empty the dishwasher. Uh, are we going to get divorced? You know, like then it's all kind of up in the air because I'm focused on the actions. And I think the meaning is in the action. When the actions should flow from the meaning of my sacrificial love and my faithfulness to my wife. The actions of faith, the works, feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, should naturally flow from our faith. And if they don't, that's why we are judged, because Jesus is saying, your faith should look like this, and it doesn't, which means you didn't have that faith in the first place. He's not saying, you have to do this in order to be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's recognizing this is part and parcel of our relationship. So I think it's an opportunity for kind of a spiritual gut check, but really an opportunity to ask the question, do I trust Jesus and what he did on the cross for me enough? And then am I just deeply in love with him? Because if I am, all the rest will happen naturally. Jesus is far more worried about our faith looking like the proper faith that has those works flowing from it than going and particularly saying, don't do this sin, don't do that sin, don't do this sin, don't do that sin. He doesn't want us to sin, obviously, but he kind of took care of that problem. Right, like sin is not a big deal for Jesus in the sense that like we just go to him with repentance and it's easy to take care of. But us willfully responding and falling in love with him, that's on us. That's the thing he's concerned with. And part of that looks different. Our life looks different. Our works look different, which is why Jesus constantly comes back to those. How did you treat your neighbor? How did you treat your brother and sister who was in need? The story of the Good Samaritan. Are you going off looking for the lost sheep, the lost coin? Using those stories, parable after parable, about how we express that faith. And not so much about you've got to be perfect and get rid of all that sin. So that's one thing. My second answer, this is a prefigurement of uh, what I'm going to talk about on Sunday. Um, and it's a beautiful story. I'm not going to tell the full story of it because I'm going to tell it on Sunday. So you should come to Catholicism 101. But uh, there was a, uh, a Franciscan uh, friar who had a vision. He was, a, he was a contemporary and a student, I believe, of St. Francis of Assisi. So after St. Francis of Assisi dies, he has this vision of St. Francis, or that St. Francis is speaking to him and revealing to him this vision of a meadow. And in the meadow, it's crowded with people, and there are two ladders. And there's a ladder extending from earth to heaven that's red. And St. Francis says, come on, brothers, come up. And at the end of the ladder is Jesus with his wounds. And so they're trying to climb up this ladder, and some of them get to the third rung, the fourth rung, the fifth rung, but they fall. They eventually fall off, all of them. And they hear something like Jesus say, like, your sins, your sins did this to me. Recognizing that, like, they're sinful, that wounded Jesus, and we can focus on all of these works to get back up to Jesus, but we're not worthy of doing that. And then they see there's a ladder not going from earth to heaven, but coming down from heaven to earth that's white. And St. Francis says, there's still time. Let's go to this ladder. And they all effortlessly are able to go up it. And who is waiting at the top? Anyone know? Mary. Mary. So if you're worried, if you're doing enough, just entrust yourself to Mary. Worrying about if we're doing enough is the red ladder. 
Am I doing enough devotions? Am I making sure that I have the like regimented sacramental spiritual life that I'm supposed to have to look holy? And it's kind of like we're chipping away at the sin piece by piece. And the white ladder is simply through Mary. Not official church teaching, but from a, a vision of St. Francis that I think is helpful. So anyway, hope that answers your question. Long-winded answers tonight, I'm sorry. I'm getting excited. <laughs> Other questions, comments? Yeah, Miguel. Who's the gatekeeper? And when does it get singled out? <clears throat> the words say, hey, everyone, you have to watch. But then he says, he specifically singles it out, say, hey, it's your job to be the watcher. Yeah. Who is he and why does it get singled out? So I don't think we can interpret, we need to interpret it as one specific person because many people would keep watch. There wouldn't obviously be one gatekeeper. There'd be one person up all the time, all night, which would not be practical. But the gatekeeper is the one who's in the position of authority to warn the rest of the house that the master is coming. And so the gatekeeper, in a sense, is like a prophet. And so one way we could interpret this is that our ordained ministers in the church, the Pope being one of them, but even our, our bishops and our priests, they are the ones who are professing to, or the Pope especially, he's the vicar of Christ, the representative of Christ, trying to speak the word of Christ on earth into present day issues and cause us to be watchful and be alert for the ways that Christ is seeking to come to us each and every day. So in one sense, it's, you could imagine it's the leadership of the church, those who are entrusted with authority. But in another sense, we've all been given authority. We all have that same Holy Spirit from Acts chapter 1 that this language alludes to. So in one sense, you are a gatekeeper to other people. All of us are a gatekeeper to other people. We all have the opportunity to pronounce the prophetic coming of Jesus Christ to the people in our life who do not know it and to help them to be ready. And so we could interpret it many different ways, but I don't think it gets us off scot-free because it would be very easy to be like, well, the gatekeeper's Peter, so I'll just do about my work in the house. And, you know, when the Pope tells me, I'll be like, okay, you know, but no, like we're the gatekeeper too. We need to be paying attention so that we can be helping those around us be ready. It's not a responsibility that's just on those people who are professional ministers or uh, people who are clergy or brothers or sisters, religious. It's a responsibility of all of us. We all, by virtue of our baptism, have a missionary call. Every single one of us. It's the responsibility of every single baptized Catholic to evangelize. It's not up just to people like me who work for the church. It's not just up to the priests, the deacons, the bishops, the religious sisters and brothers, the pope. It's up to every single one of us. That's in the catechisms. It's part of our baptismal identity and call. And so all of us are the gatekeeper. And all of us have a gatekeeper for ourselves. People who we look up to, who mentor us, who warn us, who call out in us the ways that we need to be more watchful and be alert. Maybe you have a spiritual director, a mentor, a priest or a teacher who you admire. In the spiritual life, there are also those people who look to you. So in this context, you could probably maybe say it was Peter, the early leadership structure of the church. But I think it, you could argue that even at that time, it was also any one of them because they knew they had to keep different watches of the night. That's why the watches of the night exist. So you could divide them into three hour chunks. So one person could do each three hour chunk and the rest could sleep. Yeah. Other thoughts, questions? Yeah. In the Romans verse, mm -hmm. uh, it talks about the hour, mm -hmm. and then it's got me thinking, it's like the living in the present, and like Jesus does say at some point, my hour hasn't come yet, mm -hmm. many times. And then 
when it comes, right, he starts bleeding and sweating blood and yeah. And like the same thing for a pregnant lady. It's like yes, she her hours not come and it's like she can't really focus on that because it's it's I've seen birth and I have many sisters and it's like the last thing you want to do is impose that burden mm -hmm. like in the present when it's not needed, right? Yeah. So like it's paralyzing almost to like focus on the you know. Um, the future in a sense it's you, yeah you, yeah and then somewhere else and paul says um and it makes more sense now it's like we walk by um by faith and not by sight yeah not by sight which is that sight is the like the future yes right? yeah and it's, and it's scary right you got to close your eyes you got to do something so but but at least you're moving making forward for progress because if you're scared you're not moving yeah and so it's it, that all connects in a very beautiful way i thought yeah. No, that's exactly right. It would be ridiculous for a woman who just has a positive pregnancy test and finds out they're pregnant to start going like, okay, let's get ready and start doing all the breathing exercises of someone in full active labor. And the same thing can be true of the spiritual life. There will be a time for us to be in full active spiritual labor when Jesus comes. Now is not that time. We will, if we are faithful to God and we are close to him, we will see the signs. We will see the signs. I want to read for you uh, in the Catechism, paragraph 675. This talks about the events that will happen before the end. And um, there are ways in which it's very similar to what's going on now, but there are also ways in which people all throughout history have read this, or this didn't exist then, but like could have read something like this and said that this also describes now. But just for your own kind of reflection, this is paragraph 675. Before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecution that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception, offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God, and of his Messiah come in the flesh. And the first time I read this, I wrote, is that not what is happening right now, right underneath it? Because we can interpret that at any time, these types of things happening. And it's very easy to look to the pseudo-messianism of New Age spirituality, of self-help, of things uh, that the culture promises us or politicians promise us that skew us to want to renounce the faith or apostatize the truth because it's comfortable or it's easier to have conversations with people where we don't want to be canceled or we want to be well-liked or we don't want to be the only person in the room that disagrees. In some way, we are living this because we are in the end times. The passion was the beginning of the end of history. That doesn't mean don't interpret this, don't go home fearing for your life that the, the Christ is going to come tonight or tomorrow. He might. But that's not what Matt is saying. And if that compels you to fear, get right with the Lord. So it no longer compels you to fear and it makes you excited to meet him. But recognize we need to have that need to be watchful, to be alert at all times. Any final questions, comments? Look. No? I'm gonna read you one more thing. This is from uh, St. John Henry Newman. Uh, a reflection on this verse, Mark 13, particularly verse 33. Our Savior gave this warning when he was leaving this world. Leaving it, that is, as far as his visible presence is concerned, 
He looked forward to the many hundred years which were to pass before he came again. He knew his own purpose and his father's purpose gradually to leave the world to itself, gradually to withdraw from it the tokens of his gracious presence. In this text, he mercifully whispers into our ears not to trust in what we see, not to share in the general unbelief around us, not to be carried away by the world, but to beware, keep alert, and look out for his coming. Let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, thank you so much for the gift of this study. Thank you for the opportunity to be reminded to always be prepared for your coming to us each and every day, that you seek to reveal to yourself and arrive into our lives with blessing and abundance every day. And so often we miss it. So often because of complacency, sin, laziness, noise, or other busyness, we fail to notice the ways in which you are seeking to come to us and bless us. To help us in the midst of this Advent season that begins this Sunday, to find some way to commit to spiritual practices, to empty ourselves of the attachments of this world, to pray, to fast, to give alms, to prepare spiritually, to welcome you into our hearts each day, and always to call to mind that we are in the end times, and that should not provoke fear, but it should provoke an enthusiastic attitude to use the authority of the Holy Spirit you've given us to build the kingdom and to anxiously await one day when we can be with you for all eternity in heaven, where there is no, no suffering, no pain, no hurt, no emails. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.